The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Here's your host, Jason A. Meiske. Welcome, adventurers, to episode 126 of the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Hey, this week we are chatting with award-winning author Greg Hickey, who's written in speculative fiction, sci-fi, a screenplay, and today's sample, an interactive choose-your-own-adventure novel which is the one you're going to be hearing from today. It is so incredible, so cool. You know, the, the protagonist goes through two interactive and interweaving storylines. Such a cool thing, and I cannot wait to get you over to that. It's really, really cool. It's a great interview. We're going to be going over all of Greg's books, his background, and so much more. So that's coming up here in just a few minutes, so stay tuned for that. Hey, first, let me thank our sponsors, starting with you store all out of warnsburg missouri they are the premier self-storage facility for all your self-storage needs they have two facilities fully fenced gated access with more than 60 cameras recording 24 hours a day climate control and non-climate control and they run most of everything off of solar power so they are a clean and green facility hey check them out online at ustoreall.net that is the letter u s t o r net or click the link in the show notes. I also want to thank Scribner, the number one writing software made for writers by writers. What can I say? They've been with us for about a year and a half now. I've really enjoyed having them here. I hope that we're going to be able to continue this relationship and we'll, uh, we'll see what happens. I use Scribner every time I open up my laptop or my phone or my desktop to start writing. That's the service that I use. And I, th- I think you should do the same. It's it's such incredible software. Hey, listen to this ad so you can hear how to save 20% on your order of the regular desktop version. Jason here. Hey, I wanted to take a moment and tell you about my favorite writing tool, Scribner. Now, I know you've heard about Scribner because their writing software has been embraced by hundreds of thousands of other writers like you and I, from the novice to best-selling novelists. The reason we all use it is because of Scribner's core concept to bring all the writing tools you use together in a single application. And with tools like automatic backup, character maps, project goals, and let's not forget that amazing corkboard, you can see why I use Scribner every day. As a bonus for Sample Chapter Podcast listeners, use code CHAPTER for 20% off your desktop version. Scrivener Writing Software, built by writers for writers. Yes, indeed, Scrivener is where it's at. All right. Hey, let me also thank my two podcast networks that we are a part of, a proud partner with, starting with Pop Goes the Culture Network. They have a whole bunch of nerdy, geeky shows on their network, including Two Dads Review, The Amazing Nerd Show, their brand new show called Roll for Advantage, which is a YouTube uh, Dungeons & Dragons show. So that's a really cool thing. And of course, there is the flagship show, Pop Goes the Culture Podcast, which airs every Friday. They record these live 
on a cast channel on Thursday nights, so you can interact with them, uh, log in, check out the show, and interact, ask them questions as they're going, and, uh, and then they do other shows throughout the week that also on that cast channel. So, so click the link in the show notes so you can find out more about other shows and what else you can do to take part in one of the uh, one, like an upcoming episode. And of course, my other podcast network that I'm so happy to be a part of, Project Entertainment Network. With more than 30 shows, about 35 shows now, incredible shows like Monster Attack, Bizong, Dr. Galvanics, Odd Tales. Hobbies include writing, which is one of their brand new ones, and so many more, such as this one that you're about to hear an advertisement for. Do you like horror movies? Do you like collecting things? Do you like collecting Blu-ray special editions of horror movies? Well then, The Horror Academic's Guide to Movies is the show for you. It's a web series where every month I pick one modern classic and determine which is the best version that I recommend that you should own. I talk a little bit about the history of the movie, and in the end, you get to see what films should be in your home collection of horror's modern classics. That's The Horror Academic's Guide to Movies on YouTube every month, and now part of the Project Entertainment Network. And as always, that sounds like an incredible show that, uh, I, you know, I guarantee I've listened to it and I, because I listen to most of all the shows that are playing on both networks, and uh, I think you got to check it out for yourself. It's really good stuff, really good stuff. So this is late June, and here in America, we're about to celebrate our birthday coming up this weekend on 4th of July, which for most people, that means barbecues and fireworks. Um, it's actually my wife's birthday, so that's a, that's a really cool thing. We try and go camping every year for her birthday. That's one of her favorite things to do, too. You know, and, and mine as well. So I'm going to be away for a little while um, getting the next episode, episode 127, prepared right now. And I'll have that in the queue, ready to go, so that way it loads automatically. Because I will be gone next week uh, throughout the week. But, uh, yeah, hopefully I'll have this episode, the next episode up and ready to go. And it'll be uh, business as usual for you all here at the uh, Sample Drifter Podcast. <laughs> hey, make sure you are following the show, though. On social media, Facebook and Twitter, we're just the Sample Chapter Podcast. Of course, uh, you can also follow the show on all podcast platforms, including YouTube, uh, which has been a lot of fun over there. We're gaining subscribers every week. Uh, the views are starting to really pile up, so I'm pretty happy about that as well. But uh, anywhere you like to listen to podcasts, whether it is YouTube or Spotify, you know, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, you know, we're we're growing across the board. And I don't ask for reviews very often. I, I don't want to be selfish about it, but I have come to realize that this show, you know, it's not about me. That's, that's been the whole idea all along, is this show is never about me, myself. The show is about the authors who come on the show. So if you enjoy the show, if you found episodes that you enjoy, there's two things. I would like for you to leave a review, give me a star rating and review, and, and that way it helps build the audience, more people start to realize that, hey, this show has uh, got some value. And the other thing I'd really like for you to do is to share those episodes. Whenever you do find an author that really spoke to you and they had a book that you really, really enjoyed, make sure you are sharing that episode. And of course, go leave them a review as well. Whenever you're done reading that, that book, leave them a review so that, that way they know how much you enjoyed it. All of this helps grow this show because it's not about me. It's about these incredible authors that come on week after week 
And as the show grows, so does the audience, and, and so does the uh, you know the possibility that somebody else out there who doesn't know what to read next all of a sudden finds their next favorite book. So, you know, it's it's your way of being able to help out the show and uh, help us grow. And uh, you know, for anybody that does put a review up on a platform somewhere or maybe on a social media post, I'll make sure to uh, talk about you on the next episode. I'll give you a shout out. Speaking of. If you would like to reach out to me, you can do so at samplechapterpodcast at gmail.com. Drop me a line. Let me know if you have a recommendation for the show or perhaps you have a, uh, perhaps you are an author yourself and you'd like to come on the show, then just reach out to me that way. And if you'd like to call the show, you can do so at 660-851-1146. Leave me a voicemail. Let me know what you think, what your thoughts are, whatever's on your mind. And if it's something great, I'm going to play it on the next on the next episode. Hey, without further ado, I think it's time to go ahead and get us on over to that interview with Greg Hickey and hear about his incredible interactive choose your own adventure book, The Friar's Lantern. So that's coming up right after this. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the Sample Chapter Podcast. This week, we are sitting down with a very interesting author that I cannot wait to dive into. He writes entertaining stories for smart readers. This is Greg Hickey. Greg, welcome to the show. Hi, Jason. Thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to diving into some of these books. You have a whole line of really, really interesting books. But uh, first, let's hear a little bit about yourself and uh, how did you get started writing? Sure. Um, I really kind of started writing semi-seriously, um, or at least I intended to write semi-seriously when I was in junior high school. Um, I remember I was in an English class and we were assigned to write a short story. So I wrote this story about um, a cruise ship that gets shipwrecked on a deserted island and the passengers have to fend for themselves. And it's kind of a, a Lord of the Flies situation where they all turn on each other and, and you know, chaos ensues. Um, and my teacher enjoyed it and I I, either I or my teacher read it for the class and the class seemed to enjoy it. And I liked the process of writing the story and, and being able to entertain people. So I decided that the summer after um, that year of school that I was going to sit down and I was going to turn this short story into a full length novel. So, uh, you know, started out with good intentions, but after a few days of sitting alone in my family's basement, you know, typing away at our, our old Macintosh, I decided I really didn't want to spend my summer down there instead of, you know, playing outside with my friends and enjoying <laughs> nice weather. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that project never really got going, um, but it at least kind of helped me realize that writing and storytelling was something I enjoyed um, and something that I wanted to continue in the future, um, maybe when I wasn't as interested and didn't have as many opportunities to be playing outside with my friends. <laughs> yeah. I understand that. So, so what was that, uh, or, or did you have like a lightning bolt moment or that, uh, I don't know, that moment where you said, you know, years later, you're like, okay, I want to get back to my writing. What, what was that? Uh, what happened there? Um, I don't know if there was a lightning bolt moment. It was sort of like a building of momentum. So when I was in high school, I took a creative writing class, um, with a great teacher, Julie Johnson, um, who, you know, helped me develop as a writer and really helped instill a love of, of storytelling and writing. Um, and one of the most important things that she instructed all of us to do, and that I still do today, is to just 
keep a writing journal and to jot down any ideas for stories that we come across. So I started that in high school. I've you know maintained it in different forms up to the present day. Um, and yeah, my ideas started to slowly accumulate throughout high school and into college. Um, and when I graduated from college, I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to play and coach baseball for a team in Sweden. Mm. So me, you know, a week or two after I graduated, flew over to Sweden, um, landed in Stockholm, took a train up north to a smallish town called Sundsvall, um, and spent the summer there. And my responsibilities were pretty limited to coaching and participating in the adult team's practice a couple nights a week, um, playing a couple games with the adult team on the weekends, and then coaching uh, their youth team, which was like an under-16 team, one night a week and maybe having a game with them on the weekend or a tournament on the weekend. So I had a lot of time during the days, especially weekdays, where I was pretty much left to my own devices. And I said, you know, this is the perfect time to take at least one of those ideas that I've, you know, had in my journal for years and sit down and start writing it. And so eventually, by the time I, you know, got home to Chicago about a year later, um, after playing in Sweden and then playing in South Africa, um, I was able to have a first draft of what would become my debut novel. Yeah, and this is Our Dried Voices that went on to be a finalist in the Forward Review Indie Science Fiction Book of the Year. Yes, correct. Fantastic. Well, tell us about this first novel, Our Dried Voices. Sure. So Our Dried Voices is a dystopian fiction novel. Um, it's about future humans who... Um, come after humanity has cured all diseases and they've pretty much solved world hunger. Um, they've slowed some of the effects of climate change, but the earth starts to suffer from overpopulation and conflict. And eventually a small group of humans decides that the best bet for humanity's future survival is to leave earth and try to establish a colony on another planet. So they do this and they eventually land on a distant planet. They set up a colony there. Um, and in doing so they lose all contact with earth. So, as far as they know, they're the last remaining humans. And they set up this colony where everything is eventually automated. So there are machines that prepare the colonists' food and machines that clean the colony. And over time, the colonists basically devolve until the, into these blissfully ignorant humans who, you know, play in the fields all day and they go into these buildings and have their meals and they go back out and play and they, you know, go into separate buildings and go to sleep at night and repeat the cycle over and over again not really having to put any input into sustaining themselves or into thinking about what's behind um, everything that keeps them alive. And this all goes very well for the colonists and they're enjoying it and not really thinking much about it until some of the machines start breaking down in the colony. And at this point, you know, one colonist emerges and she just, she starts to figure out what's going on and solve some of the problems. And then that colonist disappears and then a new colonist emerges and starts to solve some of the new problems. And that colonist disappears too. And eventually it comes to the protagonist, whose name is Samuel, to really figure out what's going on behind the scenes of the colony and try to fix what's going on and save the rest of the colonists. Oh, okay. Yeah, sometimes I, I hear about somebody's first novel and I think, man, where in the world did you come up with an idea for like that? But I could see this being something that's very much a, uh, almost like you just kind of look around our times, like, oh, you know, we would like to cure diseases we'd like to cure these problems and then uh population being an issue so i can kind of see where something like that might have inspired this book or did you have something 
Uh, or was there something that, that came up for you? Yeah, I think you hit on exactly my thought process. So there's, it's kind of an interesting dilemma. Like, you know, what if we cure all diseases and we solve world hunger and, you know, we don't have to worry about dying prematurely or having to feed ourselves or, you know, take care of our basic needs. Is there still going to be something that, that drives humans to be intellectually curious and simulated and, you know, live what we would consider a, a intellectually fulfilling life? Um, and so that's kind of the situation that the colonists find themselves in our dried voices where they don't have to worry about any problems. They don't, they're not forced to think for themselves. Um, and the question is, you know, will they actually think for themselves and will they actually try to be able to save themselves when the time comes? Hmm. Okay. Now, a lot of times with the first novel, uh, myself included, authors find themselves or find that they're putting a little bit of themselves or maybe more of themselves into a book than what we do as we go into uh, future books. Uh, did you have anything like that in, in this first book? Um, I don't know if I was putting so much of myself into it as much as I was kind of, you know, drawing on some of my of the themes from some of my favorite books. So it's, um, the novel's heavily influenced by H.G. Wells' novel, The Time Machine. Mm. Um, and I was, you know, enjoyed reading dystopian fiction at that time and, and still do. So it has, um, if not the direct plot of something like 1984, at least that sort of, I think, classic dystopian feel where, you know, you're in a society where things seem okay, but then everything goes wrong. Um, and, you know, people have to figure out how to adjust to this new reality that, you know, looks okay on the surface, but once you get below the surface, things are really unpleasant. Okay. All right. So what was uh, what was next for you after this? Yeah, so let's see. So I got back from, from Sweden and South Africa um, in 2009. Um, so at that point, I pretty much had a first draft done. So I was spent, you know, the next year or so revising that draft a few times, um, sending it out to agents and publishers. And then, let's see, in the fall of 2009, I started a graduate program in forensic science. Um, around the same time I had a, a part-time job as a personal trainer. So I was, you know, going to school, working part-time, um, revising our voices as, you know, the rejections started to pile up from <laughs> agents and publishers, mm-hmm. um, and then starting work on the draft that would eventually become the Friars Lantern. So it was a kind of a, you know, a lot of pots on the stove, a lot of pots in the fire, um, working through several different projects in school and part-time job at the same time. Eventually, the um, Ardrise Voices was picked up by a small press and was published in 2014. Um, so I kind of was able to get that project out into the world and then focus on the Friars Lantern. Um, and then that one was picked up by a press in 2000 and published in 2017. Very cool. Okay, so Friars Lantern was the next book for you, which is really, really interesting. And I, I cannot wait to get into this because the, the theme of it is right up my alley uh, growing up in the 80s, as I did the late 70s and early 80s. But I'm going to jump over that one first, and we'll talk about a few of your other, your, your novella and your and your novel. Uh, let's talk about Parabellum. What is this about? Absolutely. So uh, Parabellum, which is going to come out in this, this fall, uh, is a novel about a fictional mass shooting incident that, occur, that occurs at a beach in Chicago, my hometown of Chicago. Um, and the story basically follows four main characters in the year leading up to the attack, 
and it investigates how and why each one of them might have been involved in the shooting. Oh, okay, interesting. All right, so is this something that you've been able to use some of your, your day job as a forensic scientist? Does that kind of come into play here? Yeah, a little bit. I've never really had a desire to write a you know straightforward um, forensic police procedural novel mm-hmm. in the vein of something like a Patricia Cornwell, but I've definitely been able to draw on my uh, forensic experience in writing The Friar's Lantern, some aspects of The Friar's Lantern, and then in writing Parabellum as well. So I'm a, a firearms examiner at my laboratory, which means that I look at bullets and cartridge cases and guns from shooting crimes. So and, you know, some of the stuff that I've learned about uh, about guns in the course of my training does definitely come into play in Parabellum, although it's not a you know straightforward detective whodunit mystery. Hmm. Okay. And that's that's coming out uh, later this fall, you said. Yeah, tentatively late October. Okay. Wonderful. Wonderful. Wow. And how about uh, the theory of anything? Your novella. Sure. So the theory of anything is a short prequel to the Friar's Lantern. Uh, so it follows a character named Dr. David Solon, who's a professor at a university, um, professor of mathematics. And the novel kind of works backward from uh, this breakthrough discovery that Dr. Solon makes. Um, and then in the days leading up to that discovery where he's going through something obviously very traumatic. He's staying up all night, not, you know, working on this project, not sleeping, dealing with some issue. And eventually he kind of goes back and works through to the heart of that issue and, the impetus for him to make this big discovery. Okay. I, I'm really enjoying how you're not really staying in one particular lane. You, you've got, uh, kind of like what you mentioned before, you've got a lot of irons in the fire it's, with some uh, a thriller. you got your sci-fi, um, you know, the, the Friar's Lantern, which we'll talk about here in a minute. Uh, yeah, you, you're kind of going all over the place, and this I find that really interesting. Do you find that that helps you stay fresh as an author to kind of bounce around with different ideas? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I know there, there are people who will tell you as an author that it's it's really beneficial financially to write a series where, you know, you reader finishes one book and they're immediately looking for the next book in the series. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, you know, toyed with the idea of writing a sequel to Our Dread Voices or writing um, something in a, the same vein as The Friar's Lantern. But... Um, I do think, you know, kind of when I come to the end of the story, when I come to the end of the book, I personally have sort of a sense of closure to, you know, having worked through an idea and exhausted and put it on the page in a way that I hope is entertaining and engaging for the reader. And then I'm ready to move on to, to the next thing. Um, so if I were to, you know, return to Our Dry Voices or return to something like The Friar's Lantern, you know, I think it would pick up on some of the themes that I've addressed in those books, but in a different way and, you know, made from a different perspective rather than just continuing the story that I've, I've set out so far. Interesting. Okay. I, I could see that. And that, and again, that I think you see how that might be keeping it fresh for you so that you're not going back to the same well, uh, but yet at the same time, um, continue a continuation from that story from a, maybe like a different point of view or, uh, from a different angle, at least. Yeah, I, I think that's you know something I've thought about doing. It hasn't grabbed me yet in the way that some other stories have. Okay, yeah. Well, as if being a novelist and a short story guy, you know, and then with your day job and everything else that you do, you've also got a screenplay. Now, how did this come about? 
Yeah, so the screenplay is several years old now, a, a decade old at this point, I guess. Um, when I was in college, I took a class called Dostoevsky and Popular Culture. And this class basically consisted of us reading Dostoevsky's novels, most famous novels, and then watching the film adaptations of those novels. So we you know, went through Crime and Punishment and um, Brothers Karamazov and The Gambler and you know so forth. And our final assignment was to write a screen treatment for The Brothers Karamazov. So I took a particular chapter in The Brothers Karamazov, called, which is about the Grand Inquisitor. So this um, Spanish Inquisition cardinal, I think, who is you know tasked with uh, interrogating heretics or supposed heretics. Um, and in Brother Karamazov, he encounters Jesus Christ, who come back to Earth for some reason, and the Grand Inquisitor accuses Christ of being a heretic. Um, so originally, this, I wrote this treatment, and it was pretty much a straightforward adaptation of that chapter, kind of built out a little bit more, um, delving a little bit more into the interaction between the Inquisitor and, and Jesus Christ. And then over time, I decided it'd be interesting to turn this into a complete screenplay. So I worked on that and eventually transformed what was, you know, the grand inquisitor screenplay into something different where there's still this sort of, um, inquisitorial conversation going on, but it's set in a contemporary world between two friends, um, meeting in a bar and discussing, um, what has happened over the past year, which has left one friend, um, in a wheelchair and with his wife having just recently passed away. Um, and the other friend kind of grieving for his, his friend and his friend's wife, but also kind of ha- hiding some secret, hiding some secrets. Um, and so the, the screenplay kind of goes through flashbacks, what happened to the two friends in the, the previous year, and then centers on their conversation in the bar and then kind of probing each other and, and getting at the secrets that has built up over the past year. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. So is this something that you've been able to shop around? Um, I shopped around for a little bit. Um, it, you know, it was had an option for a little bit. Um, and that option expired. Entered in some screenplay contests and, you know, got an honorable mention here, semifinalist there. But, you know, at this point, nothing's really come of it. And I've kind of, you know, set it aside and, and moved on to other projects. Okay. Well, you know, uh, there's a one of my uh, novelist friends who has sold his rights for, for movies several times, uh, the rights to his books for movies several times. He says the good thing about the rights uh, going out is that now you can sell it again. Yeah, there you go, exactly. <laughs> so, man, well, that's that's exciting, though. I mean, just the idea that, you know, there's still that possibility and you've got that there. Uh, any any thoughts about another screenplay down the road? Um, I don't really have any plans to do another screenplay, you know, at least in the <laughs> near future. Um, I did, not that I didn't enjoy the process, um, but I've enjoyed writing novels more. I think, and all the ideas I've had lately seem to lend themselves better to novels than to to a screenplay. I got you. Okay. All right. Well, let's. Uh, we, we've kind of teased and danced around it a little bit, but let's go into our book of the day, The Friar's Lantern. Uh, go ahead and let the audience know what this is. Yes. So, The Friar's Lantern is an interactive novel. Um, so you mentioned earlier, growing up in the in the 80s, um, there was a series called the Choose Your Own Adventure books that was very popular at that time. Um, I myself am a child of the 80s and 90s, so I remember them as well. And the premise of these stories is that you, the reader, are the protagonist. 
So the story story is told in the second person. So it says, you know, you do you do this and you do that. Um, and at very po- various points in the story, you, the reader, will have the option to decide how the story continues. So the you know if you choose to run from the monster and go into the dark and scary forest, turn to page five. If you choose to run to the equally dark and scary cave, turn to page seven. You turn to the corresponding page, and the story continues from there. Um, so like I said, very popular with young readers, and I enjoyed the idea of this, this structure of the story, and I wanted to do something that was a little bit more grown up. So in The Fire's Lantern, it kind of hues to that classic choose-your-adventure-style structure, but dealing with some more adult themes, some more adult ideas. So in one main story thread of Fire's Lantern, you agree to participate in this university research experiment where the scientist at the university claims that he can use an MRI machine to predict your behavior. And the experiment involves you possibly earning vast sums of money, and you know it's kind of this mind-bending experiment that you have to go through. And another thread of the story you are a juror on this murder case, which involves the previously mentioned Dr. David Solon, who's this university professor accused of, of killing a man, apparently in revenge. So you're sitting on the jury for this, this murder case, and you have to decide, you know, A, did Dr. Solon, is Dr. Solon guilty of killing this man? And B, was he in any way provoked? Was this in sort of a heat of, heat of passion killing, or was it something else? Was it premeditated? And so... Those are two main threads of the story, and as you move through various choices, different plot threads weave in and out as you go along. Oh my goodness! Okay, see, see, and I'm I'm used to thinking of the old style where it's uh, like uh, the the book I had, uh, where I would I spent I think weeks going through the different threads. It was still the basic knight uh, versus dragon, and you're trying to find your way through caves or some other you know through the haunted forest and get to rescue the girl at the end. But it was still the same thing. It was just the knight versus the dragon kind of a storyline. Uh, whereas this one, this is amazing. You get two different storylines that will weave amongst each other. Oh my gosh, how how much work went into this? Um, quite a bit. Otherwise, I should <laughs> clarify. Um, you, the protagonist, will go through both storylines. So oh, you know, wow. the story story starts out with the research experiment, and you kind of go through the early stages of that. And then the next morning you have to go to jury duty, so you start on the trial. And then you know you talk about this experiment with one of your friends and with some of the jurors and discuss what's going on. Ah. Um, other things happen, and then it kind of all comes to a head at the end where you have to go back and finish the experiment, and you have to decide on a verdict for the trial. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as the, the structure, uh, definitely a little bit challenging in terms of figuring out where everything would go. Um, you know, figuring out not only what little plot lines I wanted to weave in and out, but, you know, where those plot lines would fit over the course of the story. Are they, you know, it's easy, to, it's relatively easy to say, okay, here's, you know, the experiment part of the story, beginning, middle, and end, but where does, you know, this sort of subplot line need to come in, in within that overall structure to have yeah. the story make sense and, and to be intriguing. So two things really helped me kind of lay the novel out and, and get the structure right. Um, the first was to draw out a map of the story and all the diverging choices that would occur over the course of the story. So I you know, started out the top of this page with one line, you know, you go to the laboratory and then do you want to participate in the experiment? Yes, line going one way, no, line going the other.
other way. And then, you know, branching off from each of those two lines, two more lines and so forth. And so it, it looked really neat at the top of the page. And then as I got down to the bottom of the page, you know, there were lines crisscrossing and swirling all around. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, wouldn't have been useful to anyone except me. But, you know, it was enough for me to, like, figure out, okay, here's where everything's going to go. Um, here's how I'm going to organize it. And, you know, I can decipher my own handwriting on the page. At least I can figure out where everything needs to be. Hmm. Um, so that was really helpful kind of at the outset getting everything in the right place. Uh, as I started writing the manuscript, um, what really helped me is instead of using page numbers for all the choices, uh, designated all the choices by three-letter codes. So instead of turn to page five, I would write turn to page AAA, and then I would label the corresponding page that you turn to page AAA. So I knew ahead of time that, you know, when I'm writing this in Microsoft Word, A, when I go back and edit it, you know, I might be losing a page here, I might be gaining a page here, so the page numbers are going to change. And rather than having to change all the page numbers every time I go through and make a, you know, a substantial change to the, to the manuscript, it'd be easier just to have codes that I could place later on. And so then once the novel was ready for publication, it was easy to go back in and, okay, all the pages are where they need to be. So page AAA now becomes page five and page BBB now becomes page 10 and, and so forth. Wow. Oh my gosh. I can just imagine that being up on a wall with, uh, you know, kind of like the crime scene investigators and you got the, the pictures and then the yarn strings going from one to another, all the different threads. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't quite that complicated. It was, the, dry, the drawing was sort of a beautiful mind type thing where, you know, <laughs> lines and short descriptions scribbled in all over the place and stuff like that. But I'm not good, not a good enough artist to be drawing the pictures that correspond to all the scenes and stuff. So. <laughs> I, I know kind of what you're talking about. When I, when I very first started my, my first novel, like 10 years ago, I had, uh, I had all my notes in the beginning of this notebook. And then towards the back end, I started thinking like, okay, wait a minute, how, how am I going to make this work where this person's connected to that person? How did, so I started doing, I, I wrote like one person's name in the middle of the page, uh, the main protagonist, and then would do other names and then draw lines. And it got so convoluted. I had lines going everywhere and I'm trying to go through with different colors so I could figure out who oh, was yeah. who and where they're going. But it, it, it was really interesting and it looked kind of neat, but oh my gosh, it was it, anybody else that looks at this is just going to lose their mind. But, right. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I can just I can just imagine seeing yours. Yeah. So I mean, it was probably only helpful to me, but you know, I've shown it <laughs> to some to some other people who are curious about the structure of the story, and I don't know if they got anything out of it except that you know, here's a way that you could structure the story. <laughs> so, do you have, uh, or I guess you probably already know, then how many different kind of endings do you have? Um, there are only a few endings through the course of the story, so. One of the things I think, the major thing I think is different about my novel versus the original Choose Your Adventure stories is that there are really aren't any opportunities for you to die in the Friar's Lantern. Mm. Um, versus, you know, I think in a lot of the Choose Your Adventure books, if you would die, you would, you know, meet some fate that would end your story prematurely, I guess. But I think, you know, when we're talking about most of us in everyday life, the stakes are not when we walk out our front door, are you going to live or die that day? I mean, certainly that is a possibility, but I think most of us, it's something different. You know, 
is there something that's going to come up at work that's going to significantly affect my future or my livelihood? Um, is there something that's going to come up in a relationship that's going to, you know, significantly alter the course of my life? So I, that's kind of the issues that are dealt with in the fire's lantern versus big issue. You die or your story ends prematurely. Okay. All so right. most readers, I think, will make it through to the end where they get to decide on the, the trial verdict and finish out the research experiment. Huh. Fascinating. And and this is even on Kindle as well. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Oh, wow. It's even on Kindle Unlimited. So, I, you know, now I, I understand how Kindle Unlimited works, you know, that you get... Yeah, as authors, we get paid per page read, but I wonder, like, how often does this, like, reset when somebody wants to go back and do it again with a different route? Do you get <laughs> extra that page know. reads? You know, I don't know. I haven't <laughs> figured out where it correlates, you know, do they count the going back and reading again as additional page reads? <laughs> um, I, I would guess that, you know, I, the story is set up that you, I want readers to be able to go back and take a different path if they so choose. Yeah. So at the very least, I'm hoping that they'll read more than, you know, half the book, which, you know, would take them through one single storyline. So they'll, you know, finish that one storyline or finish part of that one storyline and go back and try at least part of another storyline. Okay. Um, so it's a relatively short book in terms of page numbers with the intention that readers will be more willing to go back and, and play with different storylines. Oh my gosh, this is so cool. Okay, so I'm sure everybody right now listening is probably screaming the question I've got to ask. Do you have any plans for another one? Um, I have toyed with the idea of doing another um, interactive novel. <laughs> um, I don't think it would be directly related to The Friar's Lantern in terms of the same story and same characters, um, but I have toyed with the idea of doing something a little bit different, but in the same same format, same style. Wow, very cool. Very cool. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you got to let us know if uh, if you do another one, or, of course, you know, any of your other books. Let us know oh, so we can help uh, tell everybody about these. Definitely. <laughs> Appreciate that. Oh, my gosh. Well, where can uh, where can people find and follow you? Um, probably the best place is my website, which is greghickeywrites.com. Um, that's the easiest place to find all my social media channels um, to get download free samples of the Friars Lantern, Our Dried Voices, um, and the opening scene of Parabellum, um, as well as the Theory of Anything, which is free on my website. So if readers want to go download that and get a head start on the Friars Lantern, um, the, go to my website and there's a, a spot to download the Theory of Anything. You just put in your email address and the book is sent to your email. Fantastic. All right. Greg, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. This has been really fascinating, and I just I love this this whole story you've got going with all the different uh, the different books, and I, I think you got a, a really bright future ahead with, with as an author, and certainly with your day job. I, that's it's some really important work you've got going. Well, thank you, Jason. I appreciate that. All right, ladies and gentlemen, choose wisely if you can. I am going to step aside, and it's time for our guest, Greg Hickey, to read his sample chapter from. The Friar's Lantern. All right. Just to set this up for the listeners. Um, so you've agreed to participate in the university research experiment. You have been strapped into a table that is sliding back into an MRI machine. As you go into the machine, you start watching a video, and this voice crackles through your headphones. 
Welcome to the Waterboro State University Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging Research Laboratory, and thank you for your participation in our study on the use of fMRI in predicting human behavior. An image of the laboratory's dull exterior appears on the video screen, then morphs into a photograph of the lab's MRI scanner. Our study builds on previous research in neuroscience, human psychology, and MRI technology. In 2008, scientists at the Max Planck Institute for Human Cognitive and Brain Sciences in Leipzig, Germany, used fMRI to examine subjects as they engaged in simple voluntary actions. Their research demonstrated that the outcome of an individual's decision may be encoded in the prefrontal and parietal cortices of the brain and detected by fMRI up to 10 seconds before that decision enters the individual's conscious awareness. In other words, the human brain is capable of reacting and making decisions in response to external stimuli in advance of the individually consciously articulating a choice. A cartoon image of a human brain appears on the video screen, with a section at the front of the brain pulsating radioactive red. After a few seconds, the animation expands and the white edges of a human head and body fade in around the brain, in disturbing resemblance to a chocolate outline at a crime scene. The letters A and B hover in front of the silhouetted figure, and he contemplates the two choices while his brain continues to flash for what must be 10 seconds. Then the animation raises its arm to point to the letter B. The voice continues. Two years later, a 2010 study by scientists at UCLA demonstrated that fMRI brain scans could be used to predict an individual's choice one week in advance of the resultant action. In this second study, the researchers showed subjects a video promoting the use of sunscreen while the subjects underwent an fMRI brain scan. Immediately following the scan, subjects were asked to rate the likelihood they would increase their sunscreen use in the subsequent week. A week after the scan, the subjects reported their actual sunscreen use over the course of the week. When compared with subjects' expectations of their behavior, the researchers noted that fMRI-measured activity in the medial prefrontal cortices of the subject's brain accounted for 23% of actual changes in sunscreen use above and beyond those changes predicted by the subjects themselves. In other words, fMRI was more accurate in predicting changes in subjects' behavior over the course of the week than were the subjects themselves. The image on the screen melts into a chalk-outlined human profile reclining under a white tube with a tiny golden sun on the side, his brain flashing like an industrial fire alarm. The sunscreen fades, and a full-body chalk-outlined figure stands and saunters in place as images of the sun and trees appear around him. As the rays beat down in pulsing yellow snakes, he produces a cartoon sunscreen bottle and proceeds to smear the contents over his two-dimensional figure. Our research builds on the results of these two studies and others like them by attempting to further identify the decision-making mechanism in the human brain. The ethereal voice continues as the scene fades. One week from today, you will have the opportunity to make a potentially lucrative choice. You will enter a room to find a table holding two closed, opaque boxes. Beyond the whitewash of the plump headphones, you hear the muffled bone saw interrupted by a harsh metallic car horn. A pair of two-dimensional cubes labeled A and B appear on the screen. The first box, box A, will contain $1,000, the voice continues. A white rectangle with the header Waterborough State University and the text paid to the order of U and $1,000 levitates out of box A. The second box, box B, will contain either nothing or $1 million. A second rudimentary check, this one for $1 million, arises from box B, hovers for a moment, and then disintegrates into tiny scraps of paper. You will have two options from which to choose. You may decide to take both boxes A and B, or to take only box B, but not box A. If you understand the terms of your choice, press the button on the control in your right hand. 
When you are ready, you press the button. Based on the fMRI scan taken at this moment, in conjunction with a brain state prediction model developed here at the laboratory, a prediction will be made today regarding your choice. If the model predicts you will take both boxes A and B, no money will be deposited in box B. The face outline reappears on the screen, the front of its brain containing the blinking crimson letters A and B. Boxes A and B return, and A opens up to release the $1,000 check, while B tips forward to reveal its empty interior. If the model predicts you will take only box B, $1 million will be placed in that box. The face outline's brain flashes red once more, this time with just the letter B inside. Box B opens, and the $1 million check flies out. If the model predicts you will randomize your choice, such as by flipping a coin, no money will be deposited in box B. If you understand the terms of your choice in regards to the model's prediction, press the button on the control in your right hand. You digest the scenario once more and press the button. Upon conclusion of this scan, the fMRI data will be encoded into the model, and the model will make its prediction. Based on that prediction, either $1 million or nothing will be placed in box B. The person outline disappears, and a question mark leaps in from the upper right side of the monitor and flies into the open box B, which closes behind it. A clock materializes, and the hands whip through a few revolutions before the person outline walks back onto the screen. The model will make its prediction, and either $1 million or nothing will be placed in box B today. You may return to the laboratory one week from today to make your choice. The study is performed with many other subjects, and the model is currently 91.8% accurate in its predictions, with that rate increasing as our study progresses. If you understand the terms of the entire arrangement, press the button on the control in your right hand. $1 million. You understand that. You press the button, and the voice in your headphones says, Thank you. This completes the fMRI portion of our study. I understand the choices, and I'm pressing the button to begin the journey. Just as you should, because that was Greg Hickey reading a sample chapter from his interactive, choose-your-own-adventure book, The Friar's Lantern. Such an incredible story. I cannot wait to dive into this for myself. As we said during the interview, it's available on Amazon, Kindle, and Kindle Unlimited, so it's free to borrow if you have an account. Click the link in the show notes for Greg and all of his books. Don't forget to also click the links in the show notes for our podcast friends and sponsors alike. And hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out next time when we come back with a brand new author, a new book, and an all new sample chapter. Take care, everybody. If you're celebrating 4th of July, be safe. And we'll see you again real, real soon. This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.